Have you ever thought about breaking your burning routine? You might find a new place is totally serene. Thank you for tuning in to Hannah and Eric Go Burning, a podcast by birders for birders. I'm Hannah and he's Eric. We created this podcast to share adventures, sometimes misadventures, and opinions that we have on different birding topics. We're definitely not experts and anything that we discuss that might be controversial. I want you to remember their own opinions and they might be different from yours. So I think the biggest news right now is about the AOU taxonomic changes, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, what I feel like my uh, my social media feeds have been full of. Yep. So the so the AO, AOS, the American Ornithological Society, they um, every year get submitted proposals for different things that people want to see changed taxonomically with birds, either lumping things that they think um, need to be grouped together as the same species, splitting off subspecies from, and creating full species, changing um, how they're organized. There, there's lots of different options for choices for taxonomic changes and they just recently just the other day had uh they they met and they went over all of the submissions and came to a couple of decisions um two of which are affect most people or not affect most people but are really kind of affect a broader spectrum of people in the in the u.s they live in the u.s um so one of them was the relumping of the western flycatcher a number of years ago western flycatcher was split into pacific slope flycatcher and the um cordillerans flycatcher and there there was a lot of controversy over that and now they've been relumped back together so for us it didn't really matter because we uh We've never positively identified a Cordilleran flycatcher yeah, anyways. Yeah, but, but then but, we, miss, we lose our Pacific Slope, which we have Pacific Slopes calling like out here all the time. So. I, I like the name of Pacific Slope. Just, I mean, for, for, for me, for where we're at, it's great, but what, whatever. It's, it, is, it is what it is. Um, I mean, we're on the Pacific Slope of the coastal range, and they're like, they're out, they're like crazy. We hear, we hear them a ton out, out here. But um, the other change that was made is the splitting of northern goshawk from American to American goshawk and Eurasian goshawk. So the goshawks that are in Europe are now their own full species, and the hawk, the goshawks that are in the states and in Canada are now its own full species. So it's exciting. So if you had seen both of those, you're going to have a net change of zero. <laughs> but it, I mean, you could uh, could shift one way or the other depending on how, what you've seen, where you've seen it. Um, I don't know if and when eBird would change any of this stuff. eBird follows Clement's checklist, not, um, necessarily ALS or, um, IOU or any, any of these other ones. They follow Clement's, which is a whole different, um, taxonomic thing, but they also kind of, eBird deviates a little bit from Clement's occasionally. So we'll, we'll see, um, I think it's August when they do their, uh, taxonomic changes in eBird. So we'll, we'll see what they what they do, and I, I imagine these changes, even if they went with them, probably wouldn't make it into this taxonomic change. I yeah I don't, I don't know. know, and not to be a totally amerocentric because there are a number of other proposals oh, that yeah. have been discussed too that um, affect uh, Central America and into the West Indies. So definitely take a look, and you know it's a interesting read. Uh, some of the proposals, if you haven't looked at it before, some of them are highly scientific mm -hmm. and some of them are not which i think is really cool you know it looks like they've done um, a lot of scientific name changes to species in uh, central and south america like tiny hawk and zapata rail so it'll be interesting um to see you know how those things 
affect the, the birding community if it even does uh, greatly. But it's interesting to see how, you know, birding is, birds and our understanding of birds is still evolving. You know, there's so many times in history, so I've been reading a lot about history of birds. There's so many points in history where people are like, okay, that's it. We know everything about birds. You know, we don't need to learn more. It, it happened a lot with religious revolutions that it's like, this is God's plan. You know, we don't need to, um, you know, try to assume his plan at all. Mm -hmm. And so they stop like doing any kind of like research or understanding better, but it's, uh, I think it's really cool that we're in a place in history now where we're trying, still trying to, you know, continue to learn more about birds and figure out like the whole history and evolution of the, all these species. So yeah. it's, it's interesting to go through and, and look and, you know, it's like, I live in that time in history. <laughs> yeah. So anybody can submit, um, changes to the AOS, um, wh whatever you're proposing. Um, there is a whole bunch of, um, hoops to jump through in order to submit it. I don't, I've never actually gone through and looked at the exact hoops you've got to jump through, but I know it's pretty much open to anyone. You just have to submit your proposal and all of your evidence, and then it will be reviewed by those that review the, the, com committee. the committee that reviews all of those changes. So if, if anyone's interested in changing something, go, go for it. And it's kind of, kind of exciting that anybody can be involved in this process. Yeah. But yeah, that's, that's the, that's the thing that's been on the news on, on my feeds too. Yeah. On, on my social medias. Okay, so moving on, we've got, uh, Hannah had a couple podcasts, a um, couple coming up, a couple we just listened to. Um, yeah. So what do, you, what do you got coming up? So, uh, or just passed. <laughs> <laughs> last week uh, on July 6th, an episode of Women Birders Happy Hour came out, and I mm -hmm. interviewed Aaliyah, who works for Birds Caribbean. I'm really excited to be working with Birds Caribbean for the next couple episodes of Women Birders Happy Hour to highlight all of the really amazing women that are working and um, that influence that organization. And they've got me so excited about going to the Caribbean, so um, I... <laughs> I'm going to be looking for plane tickets so and then forcing Eric to be visiting all these Caribbean islands because it's just it's such a as if it's twisting my arm I know it's such a diversity of um locations there that you know I just totally overlook it because it's easier on the west coast to fly to Hawaii not that we do that you know frequently or ever never we've been never there. been to Hawaii. well you haven't um but it's easier to fly to Hawaii than it is to the Caribbean and so I just never really think about going to the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. I, I always think about like, oh, Tahiti's like eight hour flight or something like that when, you know, there's so much to see in the Caribbean. So I hope, um, I hope we can get out there in a timely manner and yeah. visit some of these things. Uh, and then on July 20th will be my next episode of the Bird Nerd Book Club. I'm very excited about this one. It is with Marilyn Simmons, who wrote the incredible book, Woman Watching, about Louise D. Caroline Lawrence that I, I think I talked about last year that I was reading it and mm -hmm. I just enjoyed it so much. So I'm so excited to have Marilyn on that podcast with me. And like I said, that'll be out on July 20th. So listen to my podcast anywhere where you listen to any other podcasts. <laughs> probably the same place you found this podcast. Yeah. You, you could probably listen to, to either one of those. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Awesome. So we are going to be traveling. Um, actually, while you're listening to this, um, in all likelihood, if you're listening to it when it, when it gets released, um, we will be in the UK. We are going to Global Bird Fair. It's mid-July in Rutland, UK. We're going to be doing a podcast booth, so we're going to be recording a couple live podcasts. Um, I don't think we'll be posting them live like we did in San Diego, but we'll be at least recording them live so you'll hear some 
people in the background probably maybe maybe other maybe maybe I, I don't know how the um how it's going to work out. I honestly have no idea how it's going to work out. Um, Swaro has put together a booth um, that they are sponsoring. And I think if you guys are in, if you guys, anybody's going to Global Bird Fair, we will be there. We'll be all over the place. Um, we have three different uh, recording slots, um, one for each of the podcasts that and we then, host. And then I'm also doing a Women Birders uh, meetup on Friday at uh, 2 p.m. So, I, you know, it hasn't been posted on the official list, but it is on our Facebook account yeah. as an event if you want to check that out. And so if you're in the area and on <laughs> the day after this podcast comes out, <laughs> grab a beer with us and uh, meet some other women birders. Yeah, and so then also we are going to be doing a couple other things in the, next, in the upcoming future that we kind of generally have an idea about. We're going to Wings Over Willapa, which is Willapa Bay National Wildlife Refuge um, in sub- southwestern Washington in September, um, and the Rio Grande Valley Birding Festival in November down in southern Texas. Still tentatively scheduled for the International Conference for Women Birders in Uganda um, in December. So San Diego Bird Festival in February. We've been invited back to that. Um, kind of kind of excited to, to go back. That would be the third year? Fourth year that we're doing that. Uh, yeah, fourth year. Yeah. Uh, spring chirp in next spring, so this is spring 2024, where I'm talking almost a whole year out now. I know. Um, and then um, Hannah has uh, is going to be going, hopefully I'll be joining her and not, and doing my own thing, but <laughs> an awesome whim, um, opportunity for a, um, a woman-only trip to Brazil, uh, the Amazon Birding Expedition Brazil for Women in September of 2024, so that's over one year from now. That's yeah. Thir- 13 months from now. <laughs> And that's with uh, Birding is the World Brazil, so I'm really excited about that. So that brings us to our July Bird Nerd giveaway. Yes. Um, so what we have for you to potentially win is a hat that I cr- kind of created. Um, <laughs> we wanted to, like, I don't know, make swag or something, and it's really expensive to embroider hats, and we don't make any money on this podcast. <laughs> so um, the cheaper option was to make a patch and then uh, iron it onto hats. Yeah. Yeah, so we, out of out of a own personal labor time and everything, <laughs> um, Hannah, Hannah created a design for a patch. Um, we bought a, a small pack of patches to see how that's going to work, and then uh, she spent some time ironing them to some hats. Yeah. And I think if anybody's watching our uh, any of our social medias, you've you probably saw a picture. I think I was wearing yeah, a hat. I, you took yeah, a picture of me picture. when I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> um, and so that's a hat. Um, I don't know which color hat we're giving away, but uh, I don't know either. We've we've got we've got a handful of random colors, and we are going to be giving one of them away to a lucky winner who gets randomly chosen out of submissions. Um, for this month, for our Bird Nerd giveaway. Yeah, so what we want you to do, uh, by July 25th is the deadline, is to send us in some form, email, Facebook, whatever, tell us a funny birding story. So, I'm, pretty easy. Yeah, an easy one. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be long. No. It could be, I went birding and I saw something funny, and that's it. <laughs> and if you're <laughs> interested in, in purchasing a hat, I might try to do something like Venmo and send hats that way. I don't know. I haven't really thought that much about it, but I think they're cool. Yeah. (laughs) I'm excited about it. (laughs) So anyways, moving along, I am really excited about this episode. So one of my very favorite quotes about birding is that it historically was for old women and eccentric men. And that was, you know, early part of the 1900s. Um, But as many of us know, birding is becoming 
bigger and more mainstream, especially with the pandemic. Um, that really kickstarted a lot of people into birding. But, of course, there were birders before that, and there's birders that have started after that, mm-hmm. unrelated. Um, and I know there's a lot of people that want to keep birding niche. They like, you know, having that cool special thing about them that's like, I'm the only birder I know sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but, you know, as as we've discovered, the more people that care about birds and that are out there appreciating birds, the bigger impact that we can have on birds and our world. You know, if it's always, you know, if you teach somebody about that thing, then they'll grow to love it and then grow to protect it. Yeah. So we thought this, this whole, this whole thought process matched exactly perfectly with the project, the Cornell Lab of Ornithology and the New York Times are working together on, and it's, and they're, they're calling this project Go Birding with the Times this summer. I, I, th- I think that's what the, the official name of it is. But either, either way, they're working together to bring more people into the fold of birding and bird watching and just enjoying nature that's around them, whether it be right in your backyard or abroad or wh- wherever. And it's, it's awesome to see um, more media outlets, especially larger media outlets that like the New York times and there, there's a couple other, um, large, large newspapers and magazines recently that have done little, little snippets of stuff. Um, well, and every, every New York time, times is awesome. Well, and every time that one of these outlets, you know, posts something about it, like we get flooded with emails from friends and family and everything mm-hmm. about like, Oh my gosh, did you see that? You know, the Oregonian is talking about birding in this place or that place. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's just, it's very cool to see all these major media outlets, um, getting into the game and, and being a part of birding. Yeah. Letting everybody that's not a birder currently or not yet a birder know that it's okay. And it's cool to love nature around you and pay attention to it and all, and all of that stuff. So it's I I love seeing that sort of thing being promoted and pushed. Totally, yeah. And so it was just it was really shocking for us to get the email from New York Times uh, for little old you and little old me <laughs> about birding and what they're doing with the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Um, so uh, listen in as we talk to some folks from Cornell and New York Times about birding. Well, we are so excited to have Allie and Elaine join us to talk about a uh, opportunity coming out through New York Times and Cornell Lab of Ornithology. But first, would you all please tell us about yourselves? Allie, do you want to go first? Sure. Uh, my name is Allie Smith. I am the Merlin Project Coordinator at the Lab of Ornithology. So I spend a lot of time thinking about how to make birding fun and how to get people excited about going birding for the first time. And I'm Elaine Chen with the New York Times. Um, I do a lot of engagement projects and events for the New York Times. So I'm often looking for interesting things that we can do with our readers. So how did birding come on the, the you know, list of things that the New York Times could talk about? Like, why, why birding? Yeah. So, I mean... I personally love participatory science projects. I did a bunch of them when I was in the public radio. Um, And so I have been looking for one since I joined the Times. Um, I feel like these science projects are just a great way to bring people together and also to help them learn more about their environment. And as you guys are already very familiar, I mean, the birding community is really wonderful too. So not only is it a really fun activity that gets people to think sort of differently about their environment and the world around them, but it also um, 
connects them to a very active and enthusiastic community. So that's how we turned to, to birding. Um, and then for this particular project, I mean, what was really fortuitous in talking to Cornell is that we discovered um, that the summer, even though it's a time when a lot of people are spending time outdoors, tends to be a little slower for scientific bird observations. So we thought, great, and we have this mission. We're going to help Cornell too and get people out birding. Um, and you can sign up at nytimes.com slash birds. Um, and uh, the other part of the project that we learned about in talking about this with Cornell is that what's amazing is that ornithology is fueled so much from citizen scientists and just observations from everyday people. Um, the challenge is that it's also then very shaped by the typical place, or at least a lot of the data comes from folks going to the usual places for birding. Um, so, you know, the wildlife refuges are beautiful and the green spaces are beautiful, but they're also birds who are outside of those areas that it would still be really helpful to know about, like the birds who are hanging out outside the big box store, the birds who are like near your mall. And so getting all that information can really help folks at Cornell and other scientists get a fuller picture of where the birds are. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, I like uh, being able to, you know, encourage people to get out outside of the normal places that they go. You know, we have like two or three spots in our local area that we go, Haystack Rock, the sewage ponds, you know, our backyard. But we don't really venture too far away from those beloved places. But it sounds like that's one of the, the goals of your project is to increase the data that is put out by other places. Right, right. So I mean, very much what we hope is that for people who are already experienced birders, we hope that instead of making birding just a, a, a you know, a, a planned trip, that they might just incorporate birding and kind of into their everyday lives to day to day and really make birding a habit because all of that data can be really helpful. Yeah, and that's that's something that I know I've I've kind of done and I've kind of shied away from a little bit of uh, our our Costco parking lot uh, Brewers Blackbirds and Western Gulls that uh, that we get out here. I don't I don't always list them, and I, I feel like I should probably list them more often. But I, I did see that in some of the first emails that the New York Times part of this project is sent out. Once you sign up, you start getting these emails pretty not super t not not a ton of them, but pretty regularly once a week or so to remind you to remind you, know, you what's to going on. And I remember seeing one of the, one of the emails was all about like oh don't don't forget to. Even even the house sparrows that are that are right out front of the grocery store, they're they're still a bird, and you still should be listing these things. And so it's and I thought that was really good encouragement for people that don't necessarily have the time to get out to that national wildlife refuge every day or twice a week or however often some 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 people are able to get out to these places. And yeah, so so is that the main the main goal to get people to broaden that, or is this just kind of one of the secondary goals of? Uh, of, of this project with New York Times. Yeah, I think there, we have like really two main goals. Um, so right now we're in what we've been calling kind of internally at the lab, um, our summer slump. So birders, like especially in North America, which is where most eBird data does come from, um, submit the most checklists. Most people are submitting the most checklists to eBird in the spring and in the fall. And then the summer and the winter, we get the slump. And July actually has fewer checklists than any other month of the year, which is really surprising because we're right in the middle of the nesting season for most birds in North America. And that's a really important time of year for us to understand where birds are, what species are where. And then as we get closer to the end of the month, it's also really important to understand when birds begin to migrate. So 
every any time in the summer um, can can be really really important for bird biology. But this is the time of year where we get the fewest submissions. So a major goal of this project is to just encourage people to go birding, even if it's hot out, even if you're on what at the time seems like a pretty like boring birding trip, even if all you see is like a robin and a cardinal, like that's still really important information that helps us um, understand the full year round picture of what birds are up to. And then the other goal is, is like you said, encouraging people to get out birding wherever they are. Submit checklists from, from the parking lot in Costco. We love Costco blackbirds. I'm very <laughs> familiar with them. They're delightful. They're so funny, um, but they're important too. They're birds. They're nesting in July. You know, they we need to understand what they're up to as well, just to, to, to really complete that full picture of what birds are up to um, in North America and around the world too. And I something that I find really encouraging is that like every single observation in eBird matters. Like you might think like, why should I submit the two blackbirds in the Costco parking lot? Like, does that really matter to eBird? And, and the answer is yes, it, it totally matters. So every checklist, those blackbirds will get added to our global database of bird sightings and that database powers research. So your checklist of two blackbirds helps us make better maps of where blackbirds are throughout the year and helps us better estimate the abundance of blackbirds across the whole range. And then Merlin, the Merlin Bird ID app, uses eBird data to provide accurate identifications. So every single sighting of blackbirds makes Merlin a little bit smarter and a little bit better at identifying blackbirds. So even if you know, it seems kind of silly at the time to submit that. It, it really does matter in it. Every single sighting really does help. The other day, Allie, I was waiting for pizza. Um, I mean, I live in New York City, so I was just on the sidewalk. And then I was like, oh, OK, well, I'm waiting. Let me see how many rock pigeons I can find <laughs> looking around for them. Yeah, that, that's a fun challenge. I like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I do the same thing here at the hotel with house sparrows. We have a we have a flock of house sparrows that live in one of the Escalonia bushes right out front of the front of the office. And it's it's always nice to sit in one of those chairs out there and be like, OK, well, there's three males. There's three males and then there's four that are either young or, or, or female. And it's like, all right, so then if I keep track, can I find a fourth male somewhere in this group? And so then I can, I know I have more, but it's, it's always a fun challenge. Like these little micro challenges you give yourself to, to try to keep, keep adding data to something. Yeah. And Ali, I really like um, you mentioning about how important that data is. There's so many times where I feel like I understand, you know, how important the data is because like I go troll the, the Cornell website and I look at these, you know, maps that you all have created of their, their migrate migratory route or something like that. And I always wonder, like, do other people really realize how important those checklists, whether they seem silly or not, um, contribute to what we know about birds? Yeah, we we do our best to to try to thank people um, as often as possible for for their contributions. So when what, what you're talking about, these maps, our status and trends maps, are really really fun. If you go to ebird.org/science, you can find these maps, and we're up to a few thousand species now that we have these really powerful maps for. And you can look at abundance of a species throughout its whole range, whether that's in North America or global. And for um, an increasing number of species, when for species where we have enough data, we're able to estimate the change in abundance over time, over the last um, decade or so. So for a lot of species, it it's really, th these are really useful maps. Like for, for example, one of the most dramatic maps I think is the map of the great blue heron in North America. And if you look at it, um, it, it looks really scary. So like you, you might think of like great blue heron, that's a common bird, pretty much any wetland you go to, 
there's you're probably going to see a great blue heron. But if you look at this map of the change in abundance, um, it's really, really striking, like the dramatic decline that you can see by looking at the map. Um, but the the really powerful parts about these maps is that um, people who are, are putting effort um, on the ground for conservation purposes can use these maps to prioritize areas of conservation. So looking at the great blue heron, it's declining the most rapidly in the Mississippi River Valley. So if you were a biologist and you wanted to go help great blue herons, you could focus your efforts on the Mississippi River Valley to make the biggest impact. And uh, a lot of a few states are starting to to use eBird data in this way um, to make like on the ground change for for bird conservation, which has been really encouraging. And on the flip side, I think what really struck me, Ali, when I was looking at Cornell's maps is like back to the um, focus on talking about common birds is when I looked at the maps for the American robin, what was very surprising is that you feel like robins are everywhere, but they are also on the decline, except for, I think we saw some, I think is it blue when they're not declining? There is There are little spots in Texas where they are not declining, but throughout most of North America, they are declining. So it's both kind of depressing and shocking to see that even birds that you think of as being very common, they must not be in any trouble, are, are also the numbers are going down, but that there are also some places where they're not. And so that's really intriguing. And then maybe there's something then to learn there. So you talked about your goals uh, with this project, but who is your audience? Who are you really trying to reach? So I would say very similar to this podcast, we're hoping to reach a broad range of people. So um, we have these sort of birding prompts or challenges for people who are totally new to, to birding. So one of the first asks, and actually we did a little interview with Ali about this, was just birding from your home, birding from nearby, just taking a few minutes to observe. The next one that we did uh, was just encouraging folks to bird at different times of day and to pay attention to the different kinds of birds that they were seeing. And this week was really exciting. We did an interview with um, David Sibley to encourage folks to try drawing birds because it really sharpens your observation skills by doing that. And we'll have a few more uh, sort of challenges for people who are totally new to birding. And the hope there is that, you know, we're introducing this new pastime to them and hopefully we get them on the path to becoming more experienced birders who might contribute to eBird. For the more experienced folks then, I mean, we have the mission that we've been talking about where it's like, we want you out there just trying to bird at sort of unusual times, any part of your day um, and, and putting in those counts and then use the hashtag NYT uh, for your checklist comments. So we know that it's part of this project. Yeah, I, I really liked the, fir the first couple of challenges were, okay, get out there, go birding, see, see things, see things at different times, see things at different places, see things at home. And then it kind of, kind of the shift um, for, for the, thir the third challenge of, all right, now that you've spent some time out there really focusing in on it, now let's focus in on solidifying some of those things that you're learning out there by, by drawing, by sketching what you what you're seeing, what you're what you're seeing out there, and and all that stuff, I, I like the the kind of mix because I mean you're, you're, we're getting into almost into mid July where it's going to be pretty uncomfortable for about half the country to to be outside, and so it's like okay, well you can watch from your window now and and, and draw that robin, you can watch from your window and draw that swallow that's sitting on the wire or or, or whatever it is. So try, try to solidify that stuff while you're not as uncomfortable as as you would be if you're in like Florida or. Alabama right now like it's it's, it's toasty yeah. <laughs> some, yeah. so, some of those southern states right now yeah and the thing that we it's also really great about uh um 
relying on Cornell's apps is that there is information about birds from around the world too. So along with our audience um, of being interested in people who are totally new to birders to people who are more experienced, we also would like to hear from people from all around the world too. I mean, the Times is global in scope in our coverage and we would really hope that we can get participation from around the world as well. So we have had some people write too saying like, hey, I, I, I get to travel out of the country. Do you still want to hear about the birds there? I'm like, absolutely. Please tell me about the birds you're going to see in Colombia or Mexico or wherever you're going. Yeah. And I noticed with the sketching that it says to submit it to an email address on there. So what's, what's happening with my terrible sketch of a bird that I'm going to submit before I submit it? I want to know. <laughs> Right. So uh, we are at first we thought we were going to say up front that you give us permission to publish it. But like, ah, let's allow for people to, who just want to share, but they don't necessarily want to publish it. So if we, we do want to take a selection of them and we'll probably share it to the broader group, but we will follow up with you before we do that. OK, good. <laughs> I, I also want to say even your terrible sketch that helps you learn, though, like that the time that you spent making your bad drawing, you know, you, you spent the time observing a bird and really taking all of the different field marks on the bird, the shape of the bill, the length of the tail, the color of the legs, all those things. And now, now you know how to identify that bird or recognize that like just that much better. And that's a, a way that I always recommend to people new to birding or even experience. Like it's focusing on a bird in that way, um, whether it's for art or even photography, like is a really, really great way to learn, especially when there are so many different birds to learn. Like that can be a really overwhelming thing. So that's it, a fun way to focus. And it's so cool that you you all had David Allen Sibley with this because he's just such a, a fascinating person. That's such, S a such a talented no artist. Yeah. And you know, he, he put together a step-by-step -step sketch guide. And I mean, where else are you going to be able to like learn to draw from David Sibley? <laughs> That's pretty cool. Unless you go to one of the festivals that he's at and, you know, and go, go, get, go that to one, the Northeast, yeah. get that one coveted spot <laughs> in the course. <laughs> so that's very cool that you all are doing that. What other kind of challenges can we look forward to in the, the progress of this project? Well, uh, we are going to have one, of course, that's around uh, audio and bird calls and songs. We're still working on that one. Um, and then also uh, we are reaching out to all of the amazing bird groups around the world to think about what we might try and coordinate, like sort of simultaneously, because uh, I think another prompt will be to encourage people to connect with their local birding groups, because that's a wonderful part of birding is that um, it can be a solitary thing, but it can also be a very social thing and you can learn from each other. So we really want to encourage folks who are new to birding to do that. Awesome. So so we've discussed a lot about the the benefits that uh, the birders themselves can be receiving from this, um, just lear learning skills, learning something to do additional in their pastime. Um, trying to broaden their horizons. Um, we've talked a little bit about uh, what Cornell is going to be benefiting from the additional the additional data inputs that are coming coming from all of this, and and what's uh, what's what's the New York Times uh, going to be able able to do with this new new base of birders that you're that you're able to build from here. Well, I mean, I will say. The Times has amazing science and climate coverage. So we do mm -hmm. hope that by encouraging people to sign up for this project, that people might check out our other amazing stories that we do that are about birds and other things that are happening to the earth. Um, and I mean, really, the, the hope is also just that if we can help readers uh, have a wonderful experience that broadens their horizons, that those good feelings will also sort of inure to us, too. That's what that's what the benefit of the times is like. We just want readers to uh, to to 
to broaden their understanding and and hopefully make their lives more informed and better. And hopefully from that, they like us more too. So I understand that this is going through September. Is that correct? So is this something that you intend on um, reinvigorating next summer as well? Oh, that's beyond my pay level. <laughs> I, you know, I, I hope so. I hope that we can do something like this again, but we'll see. It depends on how well this goes and how many people decide that they love it. Yeah, well, I know I'm, I'm excited about it. It's, it's, it's nice seeing more and more often seeing large news outlets and large coverage of something that we love so much, the birding and getting out, getting out there and enjoying nature and, in, in a non-consumptive way, just being able to just enjoy seeing things. It's, it's nice to see more and more coverage of that. And I, I know over the last couple of years, especially, especially during and slightly post COVID um, with so many more people joining, get, getting into the fold of birding and then it being covered a little bit more and more. It's nice. It's nice seeing that. And I'm, I'm really excited for, for the New York times for creating this project, uh, working together with Cornell to try to get in there with the science and also kind of, draw people in that aren't that maybe didn't get into it during COVID and maybe, maybe they'll, you can they were pull too them busy in with their sourdough. They were busy with sourdough. And now yeah. they can start getting into birding. <laughs> um, yeah, but very cool. I'm excited uh, about the, you know, encouragement to bird, not at maybe the hot spots, but bird in different places. So we can create that data set for some places that maybe don't get the amount of love that, um, you know, our national wildlife refuges and state parks get. So I think that is a very cool addition to this as well. Is there anything else that our listeners should know about it? <laughs> is there anything that we haven't covered? Um, we guys did a pretty good job covering all of that. Um, I guess the other part that I would say that I've really enjoyed too is um, hearing about people's stories. I mean, that's a big part of it for the Times, right? Cornell has this fun, these fantastic sort of scientific platforms, but for the Times, we're storytellers. Um, and so that's been just really heartening to see, like the, the parents who talk about their kids who are actually the birding experts and not them, or the kids who got the parents into it. Uh, we did a virtual event a few weeks ago with uh, Christian Cooper, who's a naturalist and also has the host of the show show and also a book um, along with the novelist Amy Tan, who is a more recent birder. She got into it only like maybe five or six years ago. Um, and uh, at that, we had two participants from the project to talk a little bit about their journey. And one of them, who was this lovely singer actually in Los Angeles, said that the way that she got into it at first was going to the zoo with her daughter um, and then learning about birds there. And then also because she's a singer, she's just very good at identifying birds through um, by ear. Um, um, and then the other participant that we had who was totally new to burning and was introduced to it through the project is a security guard um, at a casino in Las Vegas. Um, and so they talked about just the kind of birds that they see when they're patrolling the parking lot. And it kind of gives them a different way to be more um, observant is looking at the birds, too. Um, and so that was just really nice to, to hear those stories. Yeah, if anybody does need a, a reason to get into birding, I think observation is one of the biggest things that I've taken away from birding. You know, so many times we talk about like, I didn't even know that bird existed before I was a birder. Or, you know, when we go out to Haystack Rock here in Cannon Beach, we'd see the puffins because that's kind of a thing that everybody talks about. Every, everyone knows about the puffins in, at Haystack Rock. Yeah, whether you're a birder or not. But now, you know, we become aware of the black oyster catchers and all the different species of goals and the pigeon guillemots and those things. And I think 
observation is one of the best, um, best skills that birding can really teach you. I host a podcast interviewing women birders and I always ask, you know, what, what, skills did you learn or what was the biggest takeaway that you got from birding? And so many people say patience, but I think observation is definitely the the biggest one. Eric is definitely more observant of his world now that he's a birder. <laughs> so if anybody needs a, 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 a success story, a success story or a push to get into birding, there you go. <laughs> I love that. That's, I, I totally agree with that too. I think birding has made me a much more observant person. Um, and, and has also encouraged me to start looking at, at other things too. Like I'm noticing dragonflies and butterflies and all kinds of other critters that are out there. Um, but sort of along with observation, I, I did want to um, make sure that we mentioned that we we have tools to help you learn how to bird. If you're new, um, we understand that, you know, there's almost 11,000 birds in the world. That's a lot of different things to learn how to identify. And I don't know that any one person can do it all. But um, even just in North America, there's around 700 species that you could potentially see. And even that smaller number is still really overwhelming, especially when so many of them look really, really alike. Um, so the Cornell Lab has the free Merlin Bird ID app, which I'm I'm sure you know all about, uh, but is is a really fun tool to to use to learn how to identify birds. Um, you know whether you're new or or experienced, and I think that app has has helped make a lot of people more observant too. Like I I um, I run the help desk for Merlin, so whenever people write into Merlin, it goes to me, and then I I get to to, to read all those really amazing stories, and I, I try to pass them on to the rest of the team. But I, the stories that I get from people are are really inspiring of people that are so excited that, you know, they went outside and used Sound ID in Merlin and just stood in their backyard for a few minutes and suddenly are, are noticing dozens of species that they didn't realize lived in their own backyards. And then that encourages them to, to get their binoculars out and find them and actually get eyes on on all these new warblers that they didn't even know existed. And and, you know, in parking lots, you know, maybe you hear a weird noise. Maybe it's a magpie. Maybe it's the blackbirds. It's it's a, just one, one tool to help you get get keyed in on what's around you a little bit more. Yeah, the the Merlin sound ID has has been a game changer for uh, for beginner for, for birders across the spectrum from beginner to, to experts. But I think it's especially for beginners, letting them know that yeah, there, there are, there's 17 species right now in your backyard at this moment. And all you have to do is put it, put out, put out your recorder and it'll tell you generally what's there. It's relatively accurate. And, and you can then pique your interest of like, okay, well now I need to see, I don't, I've only ever seen two. I've only ever seen a Robin back there, but this is telling me that I have six warblers back here too. So it's, it has been a massive game changer for for people, especially beginners, getting into getting into it, I'm very I'm very excited about. Yeah, that and I, I feel like it helps me learn bird calls better. I know a lot of folks are like, "Oh, you should know all those calls already, so you shouldn't need it." But I, you know, it helps me pick out the bird calls that maybe I didn't key into when I'm sitting in the backyard and listening. You know, I'll be listening for the Swainson's thrushes and then totally be oblivious to the goldfinches that are calling nearby. But Merlin picks it up because it's not prioritizing, you know, what it's listening to. So I think that has helped me a lot, even though I've been birding for you know i think 12 years now um the introduction of that system has like eric said is a huge game changer 
Yeah, it's it's helped me learn a lot too personally. I I'm from New Jersey, but I've spent the last 6 years in Florida and in Georgia and I feel like I've totally like lost all of that bird knowledge of northeastern breeding birds is just totally gone from my brain and I I moved back up to New York recently and I'm it's suddenly it's spring and there are so many birds singing and I've had to relearn them all and Mer I'm I'm thankful for Merlin for yeah getting me keyed into like I can remember like what the song of a robin sounds like but all those little chip notes in the background like the goldfinches and all the different sparrows um like that's been a really really useful tool for me yeah well it sounds like there's a lot of great resources uh, available you know to help you get going on birding whether it's from the cornell lab of ornithology or from the new york times so it's very cool that you all are working together to get more folks out and birding and explore some of these other areas around the world so uh, we're happy that you all joined us no, thank you so much for having us. And just uh, one more call out for that, that folks can find out more about the project and sign up for it at nytimes.com slash birds. Well, we really want to thank Allie and Elaine for sitting down with us um, remotely. I mean, they were both far away and wherever, whichever states they were in at the time. And we want to thank them for sitting down, taking the time to talk with us all about this project that they're working on. And uh, we, we went and looked up the um, real quick, the, the, mission statement for the New York Times, and it's, uh, we, we seek the truth and help people understand the world. This mission is rooted in our belief that great journalism has the power to make each reader's life richer and more fulfilling and all of society stronger and more just. And I think it, this is an incredible way to interpret that mission. Yes. Um, by, you know, encouraging burning and, and spreading the word about it. Because you read a mag uh, newspaper. Like, I didn't even really think in advance. Like, does the newspaper even have a mission statement? I guess they have goals, you yeah. know, that they'd want to hit. But I think it's it's really cool that they are fulfilling their mission in this way mm -hmm. to get people to go out and enjoy birding. And, you know, that is going to make each reader's life richer and more fulfilling, as they mentioned. Um, so if you do go into the New York Times website and or just type in New York Times birding, they have a whole um, kind of platform on their page that's all dedicated to birding articles. Yeah. And they, like they've mentioned, they've had some challenges come out. Um, they have these little, you know, like side things every once in a while, different articles that are coming out from different folks about birding and, you know, how it impacts their life and or good ways to do it. Uh, so it's just, it's really cool for them to be on board with this. And so Cornell Lab, uh, they do so many cool things, as Allie mentioned, you know, Merlin and yeah. and eBird. Um, and they're dedicated to advancing the understanding and protection of the natural world. The Cornell Lab joins with people from all walks of life to make new scientific discoveries, share insights, and galvanize conservation action. So, you know, from those two missions, it just seems obvious that they would work together on an effort like this. Oh, absolutely. And I, I just wanted to kind of further hammer home the point that they uh, mentioned multiple times throughout it is July is not a very heavily burdened month out of the year across the whole world. It's, it's interesting that, um, I mean, most, it's mostly nor the Northern hemisphere that uses eBird anyways, mm -hmm. to they're, they're gathering their data from, but, uh, but there's there's people in the southern hemisphere using eBird. Of course. But July and and they're in winter, we're in summer, and we 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 would like to see as birders more data all year round and more more people out there enjoying and looking at it. So I think I think uh, this the push that they're pushing right now, 
of get out there and bird in your backyard, bird at the bird at the grocery store parking lot, um, all of the different uh, places that you can go birding. I think I think it's an important one to push because not everyone can go and stand outside in 100, 140 degree weather. Not that we have that. It's sprinkling and oh, yeah, like no, 60 right now. Well, two days ago it was like 70. It was. <laughs> <laughs> oh, a couple of days ago, we were sitting outside like, why are you so mad at the sun? Oh, seriously. You're just beating down on us. <laughs> um, and I, I really appreciate that, you know, they gave us permission to bird, like, the parking lots. Not that we needed their permission, obviously. I'm, but, always, I'm always seeking validation and permission. Yeah. <laughs> when we were living in Florida, we were driving, you know on the highway constantly mm-hmm. to go to one birding place or another. And we'd make all these, uh, these checklists as we were driving. And we constantly said to each other, like, Oh man, are they going to be mad about all these random highway checklists? We, we made them incidental because they were, they, we were driving, but we did. But I always think about that. Like, am I just going to submit a bunch of eBird lists that they're like, why are they just messing around and wasting our time? But that is definitely not the case. They need that information because every bird is an indicator mm-hmm. of something. And so it's important, if even if it's house sparrow, like we mentioned, the abundance of house sparrows as an invasive exotic species mm-hmm. into the U.S. is could change and that could impact other things or it could be telling us something about our native birds. Yeah. And then and just random people might, may just want to know, hey, I haven't seen a house sparrow in a while. I wonder where I can see some house sparrows in Clatsop County. Yeah. And then they'd be like, oh, look, look, all these random spots, I can go go find them. You can come sit in our yard and come, come watch sit, them. Sit, sit in our front yard and there's a whole, a whole colony of them that live in a bush. <laughs> so check out the New York Times birding project and get out there and make some random lists in your parking lots. Um, or your nature centers that you don't visit frequently. It's fun to go on to eBird and look at all the hotspots that have like 10 lists. Mm-hmm. Uh, we always look at those and we're like, oh, are those good birding spots? Because nobody's been there. But every place is a good birding spot. Oh, yeah. If you're out in nature, it's a good birding spot. And I, I really, I always kind of strive whenever I see, especially if there's a hotspot near me, to go and increase the number of checklists that are at that spot. Well, like, I'll, to... I'll see like the, well, the entire month of June, nobody has bur- ever birded in June at that spot. I'd be like, oh, maybe I should try that. It's June now. I'll try that. Well, and try to add some species to the list because if there's only, you know, a handful of lists at a given location, there's probably species that haven't been um, listed at that spot and you oh, can yeah. be the first. It's it's fun to, to go and see, be the first to see things at places. You know, I feel like... We... Even if it's just house sparrows and pigeons. I feel like we being arcade kids, you know, and you always wanted your name on the reader on the, the oh, high, yeah. high score list. This is totally like that. Except for I get to put more than just three initials. That's true. Yeah. I don't just have EDO on there. You I will always be the first person to see a house sparrow at X location. Exactly. Yeah. It's in the high score books and you, and you can't unplug the machine and reset the high score this time. <laughs> it's there for good. I won't say anything about Eber going down. <laughs> Okay, so anyways, um, we encourage everybody to go to the New York Times uh, website, and we'll include some sh- um, links in the show notes. Um, go get signed up, get some get some e- some emails, participate in these challenges. Um, the one that's ongoing currently is that that was just posted just a couple of days ago was the um, the sketching was the sketching the David so, Allen Sibley. So so get out there, sketch some birds, look at some look at some birds around you, and enjoy them all around. And then also, I wanted to thank everybody for listening to this podcast, all about New York Times and Cornell's project of birding. Um, 
We hope you enjoyed it and or learned something new. Please, please, please rate, review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Music, and anywhere else that you listen to us. If you would like to connect with us on the socials, please follow us at Hannah Goes Birding and Eric Goes Birding on Instagram. You can follow our Facebook page at Hannah and Eric Go Birding, our Twitter at We Go Birding. Um, pretty much everywhere Hannah and Eric Go Birding is there. You can also check out our website at www.gobirdingpodcast.com. Tell us what you hated, tell us what you liked, and share us with your friends.